Okay, we are in Mark chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading and starting with verse 14 through 20. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The one who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have, but they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things, enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it, and bear fruit thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. This is the word of God. Lord, I pray for us right now as we have heard your word. If we have not heard your word, we'd have no reason to pray this, but since we've heard your word, may the soil of our heart be ready. May the rocks and the weeds be removed so that your word might produce fruit in our life. I pray for those who are watching at home or watching later. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that this would happen, that your word would produce fruit Fruit in keeping with repentance. Fruit of the Spirit. Fruit towards salvation. Speak to us today through your word, Jesus. Amen. So this is a two, second part in a series that was not supposed to be a series. Two weeks ago, um, last week we had uh, a missionary. So two weeks ago I was preaching on the parable of the soil. And um, once again, it was not supposed to be a two-parter because we had a missionary last week. So then if you do a two-parter, it's kind of like three weeks. So hopefully you all remember two weeks ago. Uh, even if you don't, I'm going to give you a little refresher. And um, it's kind of funny, so I'm working on it, and I'm telling my wife about it, and my, my manuscript's getting quite long, and my wife said, maybe you should just split it up. I'm like, I don't want to split it up. I can do it all at one week. And it was, I get to the second point, and I realize we're at like 11.30, and I'm like, either I can go towards one, or I can save it for another week. So I saved it for another week. One thing I used to do as a pastor, I'd be looking at the time, and, and then I'd hurry up, speak fast, and it's like, I'm not going to do that anymore. That, that's, that's disrespectful to God's word. So I'm like, so I'll go ahead and save that. So this is one of Christ's parables on the parable of the soil. We, in a lot of our translations, it will say the parable of the sower. I would, I would suggest to you, when you look at this parable, the sower is very small bit of it. He doesn't even tell us who the sower is. We don't even know he's explaining who he's explaining in this parable, he doesn't say who the sower is. It's a parable about soil. It's a parable about why some people just, they just don't get it. Or why some people, they seem to really get it. Some people, they're like on fire. They're like, I went to the enemy's camp, Pastor, and I took back what he stole from me. And then a month later, you don't see him in church. You talk with them, and they're like, I can't believe God allowed this to happen in my life. I don't want anything to do with God. Or other people, you see them maybe every week, certainly not in this church, but maybe in other churches. And uh, they, they sit on boards, they tithe regularly, but they have no affection towards the Lord. The cares of this world have choked out the seed. Jesus taught in parables, and this is one of those parables. 
the Matthew portion of this um, of this parable, Christ's disciples ask him, why do you teach in parables? And that's a great question. Why does Christ teach in parables? There's a point in his ministry, he doesn't teach in parables. For instance, the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard before, do not kill, but I tell you, anybody who hates his brother is worthy of judgment. Jesus will teach directly, but not here. He says, I'm only preaching in parables, and there's a reason for this. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, in the portion we didn't read today from Mark chapter 4, that they'd be ever seeing, but never understanding, they'd be ever hearing, but never, but never listening, and so on and so forth. And it's a judgment. It's a judgment on those who are just kind of the hanger-arounds. The parables are kind of like a test for people. Because if they really care about the Master's voice, they will come to the Master afterwards. What does this mean? This is what Jesus' disciples do. The crowds don't. There's one point where Jesus feeds 5,000, another point he feeds 4,000, and then he finally turns to them, he says, the only reason why you're following me is because I fed you. He gives a hard teaching, he says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you'll have no part of me. And like, most of the people, they just leave. You know, Jesus, if he was the pastor of most churches today, he's getting voted out that week. You have a big mega church, and all of a sudden you're down to like 20 people. People are like, something's wrong, but Jesus, Jesus doesn't care. Because Jesus knows who he actually is his. He's not satisfied with growing an organization. He is building his church. So Jesus, he gives this parable here, and I mentioned in my previous sermon how many believe that this parable was added later on. They have no reason for that, no archaeological reason for that. Their, their reasoning goes like this, is that they see this as a parable. They see this parable as an allegory, sorry, an allegory. And they will say, well, Jesus didn't teach in allegories, therefore this must, must have been added later by some church fathers who, are, who liked allegories. And I'm like, I, I read that and I was like, in fact, one, one specific scholar, Walter Wessel, I like that name, so I wanted to say it. Um, is the one who made this claim, and I'm like, you know, it's it's like that it's like a, that quote from my least favorite Star Wars movie ever. You know, everything amazing, everything you just said is wrong. Um, so there's a couple things wrong with this. Um, see, we can make our statements. Jesus always does this, but if Jesus doesn't always do this, we don't then say, well, then whoever put it in there is wrong. We have no evidence. We realize we're wrong, right? And then we go, we, we align ourselves with God's word instead of trying to align God's word with our own presuppositions. Um, however, Jesus doesn't teach in allegories, and this isn't an allegory. So even that part of it's wrong. It's an expanded metaphor. It's more detailed than other parables that Jesus preaches in, but it is still a parable. Not every aspect of this story is explained by Christ for a very big reason, because that's what a parable is. It's using something, an earthly metaphor, to communicate a heavenly truth. An earthly metaphor to communicate a heavenly truth. Not every aspect of the parable actually means anything. In fact, Jesus will do a comparison contrast, like a wicked judge. Wicked judge, how does that compare to a righteous judge? If a wicked judge would do this, what will a righteous judge do? Yeah. So in parables, uh, when Jesus is giving these, uh, giving these, it is completely dependent on his own explanation of what the author meant, and that is the that is the beauty of parables. And these parables, as well, they are then hiding God's truth from those who just simply are the hard soil or the rocky soil or the or the soil that is filled with weeds. In Matthew's portion of this parable, he records Jesus saying that a farmer was sowing his seed. 
And then that kind of gives more of a uh, more of kind of a nuance in here. And in Mark's portion, it says that a sower was out sowing the word. Now, many people, even probably while Jesus is preaching this, they're seeing somebody out in the field, and they would have a bag full of seed, and they would throw the seed just in the broadcast method. That's where that word comes from, broadcast. Like you are casting it broad. That makes sense. Um, as opposed to like TV and radio and stuff like that, they took the word from this. Um, they may, may have been seeing this, and so, so this is story is found in all of the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there's somewhat of a difference between all of these as well. And the reason for that is not because uh, like one's right, the other two are wrong, or anything like this. Um, there's a couple of explanations for this. One is that Jesus this isn't probably the only time Jesus taught this parable. He could have very well taught it three times in three different ways. Um, two. Each one has a part of the details of this parable that they give. So we get the whole story, even though they only remember part of the story. And um, uh, Apologist's book, and I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, he wrote Case for Christ, Case for Christianity. And sounds like everybody knows but me. Uh, he mentioned there, one of the proofs that this is the Gospels are true is that you do have a differing point of view on each of the testimonies. And that makes sense. If you've ever been in a court case, and if all of the witnesses have lockstep every detail, you know what that means? They've colluded. Their testimony's invalid. You and I can see the same thing, but we're going to understand different things. Different. We can see a car crash. And you might say, okay, you might, you might remember every detail about the one who was crashed into. I might remember every detail about the one who was crashing into the person because I like Jeeps and you like, you know, trucks or something like that. We get different things. So that's, that's one of the reasons in here. And um, so Jesus gives this parable. He says that there's somebody out there planting. The, the use of the word, word in Mark. So the one who's planting, he's planting the word. It gives away half the meaning of the parable already. The word is God's word. The seed is God's word. And the word of God is the word of the kingdom, as we find here in Mark. Because all of the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, is about the kingdom of God. That one day there will be the city that Abraham truly was longing to look for. If you want an in-depth explanation of that, check out my Revelation series when we get to the New Jerusalem. There are 24 elders, 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel. All are part of the same great story that God has been preaching, that God has been teaching us throughout the scriptures. It is all about the word of the kingdom from Genesis to Revelation. And a, for a ready heart, the seed that is planted by the power of the Holy Spirit produces a crop leading to salvation. We are, we are not actually given the identity of the sower here. I'm going to repeat that. We're not given the identity of the sower. One commentary I read said, well, it's Jesus. Another commentary I read said, um, it's it's." Any believer. And so, well, which is it? And the answer is yes. yes. It's anybody who sows. Anybody who sows. <laughs> anybody who tells people the word of God is a sower. People who don't know any Christians, they can open up their, their, their phone, download the Bible app and start reading. They are getting the word of God sown into them. Amen. And you'd be amazed at stories. I, I heard this story of an interpreter, interpreter, Interpreter in Vietnam, and once the American troops, you know, pulled back, you know, the horrible story. North Vietnamese threw everybody who did anything with the Americans into basic concentration camps, prisons, and um, this this uh, this guy he had been interpreter 
for a, for a believer, for a pastor, and he's thrown, thrown in prison, and he has a Bible, and the, uh, the guards take his Bible, and they use it for toilet paper. Just terrible. Anyway, he was forced to do sanitation duty, and he, and he, sees, he sees these pages that have been wadded up. He goes back to his cell, he washes them off, and he starts reading, FYI, not a Christian, not a believer, furthest thing, he was just an interpreter. And he just, and he just, he just found this. Every day he volunteered for sanitation duty, which is not something you'd want to do in a prison, but that's what he did. So he's reading God's word, and he's then converted in jail. It, it took going to jail after such a horrible war for the soil to be ready. That's what this, this is. What the, this parable is about. It's about. It's not about. It's not about the seed because the seed's perfect. Nothing needs to be done with the seed. Nothing needs to be... We have no instruction about the sower himself. It is about the soil that it is sown into. There is this popular saying that's attributed to Francis of Assisi. It is, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. That seems like a great saying on the surface. Unless you understand what the word gospel means. The word gospel doesn't mean like, you know, dotting, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, good behavior. The gospel is the message of the cross of Christ. Amen. Like burial, resurrection, it is a message. It is not a lifestyle. It is not about the messenger. It is about the message. If you think the good opinion of the messenger matters in evangelism, I would suggest you read Christ's words saying that men will speak all kinds of evil about you on account of me. We read that, and maybe because of Christian movies we watch, we assume that many people are going to call us Jesus freak and stuff like that. But that's not how it happened in the early church. It's not how it happens today. All kinds of evil about you because of me. In the early church, first century church, they were called what would be the equivalent of vampires. Because, they, because people would hear how they would have a ceremony in which they would drink their Savior's blood and eat his flesh. They would call them incest, you know. They, they, they would accuse them of incest because they would call each other brother and sister, even those who were married. People knew better, but they would find every way of slandering them. It is the message. When people reject the gospel, they do not reject people. They are rejecting the cross of Christ because the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Don't get me wrong. For the sower, it is in it is in. It is so necessary to see where we're heart, our heart is at and grow in holiness for ourselves. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I disciple, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So do not hear from what I'm saying, don't worry about your own conduct, or your own relationship with Jesus Christ, just preach the word for your own sake. Make sure you know where you're at. Because so many people have confused God using me with God being okay with what I'm doing. There, you know, one of the, there's going to be two major surprises when we get to heaven. It's those who are there that we never knew about what was going on in their life. We're like, they have nothing to do with God. And all of a sudden we see them. Those that we don't see. There are so many people who are, who seem like they are powerful ministers. Who on the side are doing awful, awful things. And while their own testimony, their own thing, might actually produce salvation in others, they themselves miss it. This is a 
hard teachings, but you know it's what Christ taught, though, that there would be people who come to him on that day, say, Lord, Lord, he'll say, wait for me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And they'll say, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not raise the dead? And they have a whole list of things. He says, wait for me, I never knew you. Oh, that's, that's hard. Because sometimes we, 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 we try to make being used by God with personal righteousness, and there, it is not the same thing at all. Is not the same thing at all. There is a there was a very popular event, evangelist apologist who had passed away not terribly long ago, and um, some of you know what I'm talking about. It hit me hard because I was blessed by his ministry. We find out after he died, incredible licentiousness and evil at a scale that I that's not even common amongst amongst the unbelieving world. And it was hard to reconcile this because I was truly blessed by this man's ministry. I'm like, how do you how do you deal with this? Because the words he said were true. Didn't he believe them himself? And you know, I'm having a hard time with this. And, and I was listening to a pastor talk about this. He's like, think about the first century. There are people who are in the church who came to faith through the ministry of Judas Iscariot. Yes. I don't know how I feel about that. But it wasn't about Judas. I wasn't that, you know, if I was in the first century, I wasn't baptized in the Judas, I was baptized in the Christ. Amen. The message of the messenger is far more, the, the message of the messenger is far more important than the messenger. Though for the messenger, a godly life is essential. Amen. When I think of that message, the message from a messenger, you read in the scripture, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, which I just take on faith because I think feet are disgusting. But, um... <laughs> I think of like the story uh, in antiquity about the Battle of Marathon. That's where we get the word marathon. Um, now we've kind of like done some fuzzy stuff with the numbers, but a marathon is 26.2 miles, and it comes from the Battle of Marathon. And the messenger is then sent out to the rest of the Greek army, and he runs uh, in excess of 20 miles, and he gets there, and he shouts out, Nike! Victory. That's where Nike comes from and all that. And then he keels over and dies. And um, I was grateful that that didn't happen to me after my first marathon. Just did a half a marathon, and there was good news after the half marathon I did. I was first in my age bracket. Um, I was excited that everybody was healthy. Um, Rocky Olmsted, um, he uh, had uh, 13 jelly beans in his pocket, because he's like, anything can eat 13 jelly beans. And he ate a jelly bean after every mile. Um, the message of the messenger is is what's important, but for the messenger, their own conduct, their own relationship with Christ is essential. When it comes to evangelism strategies, strategies of getting people into the kingdom, I think it's important for us to look at the scripture itself, Jesus' own words on what the best evangelism strategy is. And we can find this also in Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 26. He said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts puts in the sickle, because the the harvest has come. I'm really taking this from Pastor John MacArthur, but I thought it was a great thing. Biblical evangelism strategy is this. You sow the word, you tell people the good news of Jesus Christ, then you take a nap. 
I'm going to follow that today. <laughs> Sunday naps are beautiful. Let me kind of bring that into what we're talking about here. If you are preaching the word of God, if you're telling people the good news of Jesus Christ, that's what the gospel is. Amen. It's not on you Amen. whether or not they accept it. Amen. It's not on you whether or not they accept it. The soil of their own heart, the power of the Holy Spirit to cultivate, that is where it is. The most important part of evangelism is prayer, and then to, then to leave the results with God, because that's beyond your pay grade. Amen. Think of the story of Jonah. This is an example of, of, of this strategy. And, and we, also have, we also have a bad example of Jonah, because Jonah's heart wasn't right. In fact, Jonah has that recorded himself. Jonah, he finally gets over to Nineveh after all the belly aching, after all these things. And the whole town, the whole town repents. There's revival in the whole town. Do you know what the amazing sermon Jonah gives in Nineveh that leads to revival? It's only one sentence. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. Nothing like repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Nothing. Just 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But you know what happens? It's exactly what Jonah feared in his deepest heart. Is that the Ninevites would repent in sackcloth and ashes. And God who is rich in mercy would have mercy on them. You know, people will talk about you know, Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will heal their land. People will point out, well, that's not for America. That was for Israel, and they're they're absolutely right. That is not a promise spoken specifically to us. But if it was true for Nineveh, the godless heathen nation, it could be applied to America today. Amen. If we repent, turn from our wicked ways, God would hear from heaven and heal our land. Here's the amazing thing. Jonah's heart wasn't right. In fact, he tells God, he's just so upset. He's like, I just want to die. God makes him a plant, gives him some shade, lets the plant die. He's like, I'm so mad, I want to die. He's like, settle down, man. So dramatic on everything. (laughs) He doesn't have a right heart, but the message, the message is empowered by the Holy Spirit, not by human wisdom. For you yourself, though, that you may not miss out on the goodness of God. Make sure your heart is right. Make sure you are living a life worthy of your calling. There's power in planting the seed. So do not think me just saying, all we do is plant seed. That's like nothing. That's this just lazy work. No, it's amazing work. It's transformative work. Yes. I mean, aren't we seeing that right now in the fields? They start off as just dust. They just start off as soil. That's dust, you know. That shows you how much now I know about farming. But anyway, they start off, you know, as far as I'm concerned, just dirt. And now it's life. Row by row by row by row. Because a farmer was faithful in planting and cultivating and making sure to de-weed, to de-rock. And now we have an incredible crop that is about to be harvested. But the harvest that is to come of souls is so much greater than this. Because when we plant the word, it does not return void. When we plant this word, it is, a, it is a crop that is so much bigger than anything on this planet. When we plant this word, it is supernatural. It is like going to dry bones and saying, live. When we plant the word, it transforms the nation and the world. When we plant the word, it is an amazing work that is being happened. 
The seed is the word of God, and this seed is good. The soil of men and women's hearts, on the other hand, that's what needs to change. And that's what this parable is about. Last two weeks ago, I preached on the soil along the path. That's the hard part. That's the Pharisees. I'm going I'm to relate it. I'm going to give an example from Christ's ministry for each one of these. The, the path along, the soil along the path, it is hard ground. It's not made for seeds, in fact. And when seeds get planted on there, birds come down, they eat the seeds. And Jesus says, this is the person who has a hard heart. They, nothing penetrates. This is like the Pharisees. Nothing Jesus said that they would be, there's nothing that Jesus said that would melt their heart. Now, not, not all of them, but as, but as a group, this is what it was like. In fact, Jesus is doing miracles, and they're like, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's doing this. And if you remember my sermon about leaders, liars, and lions, you remember where Beelzebub comes from. Anyway, um, they're saying that by Beelzebub, he's doing these miracles. There's nothing that Jesus does that they don't want to criticize, that they don't want to eventually kill him for. Some people's hearts are like that. It just doesn't matter what you have to say. Their heart is so hard. They have to pray that the, the ground gets tilled up. That it becomes soft. It's the promise of Ezekiel. I will give you a heart of flesh instead of your heart of stone. Then we have the seed along. We have the seed that gets scattered on the rocky soil. Now, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. This isn't like there's just rocks on the surface that need to be taken out. Underneath the soil, a couple feet, where you wouldn't tell with plow, there was there was limestone sediments. There still is to this day. Um, farmers in Israel still hate this, have to deal with this. You plant a crop, then you find a whole whole section of your field. Like, it looks good at first because the crop springs up fast. Mm-hmm. You get towards harvest time, and it's dead. What's going on? Oh, there's this huge rock underneath the soil that I have to excavate out. These are the people who hear God's word. They receive it with joy. It seems, it seems like, see, in churches, a lot of times... We'll do this. Somebody has an enthusiasm um, for church, and we're like, let's make you a let's make you a member, let's make you a board member, let's put you in charge of a ministry. We don't even know if they're saved because enthusiasm and joy are not even marks of salvation. You know what is? Fruit. Amen. That's the only outward sign we can tell. Fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. We should be able to see that. People should see that around you, that you are growing in these. Now, maybe there's some of these you need to grow in a lot more than others, and people will see that, like, you had no patience before, now God has given you so much patience. You had a hard time loving before, but now God has given you so much love. That is the, that is the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in someone's life, that there is fruit. This person, they receive it with joy, they are so excited, but then trials come, trials and tribulations come, and they abandon, they abandon their supposed faith. They never had the faith, they were just excited. They liked how, they liked how the gospel made them feel. You get what I'm saying here? They came to Jesus because they were told, all my problems will go away, and this is exciting. I went to the enemy's camp. I took back what he stole from me. But then God allows something terrible into their life. Which is the promise of Christ anyway. In this world will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. And then they fall away quickly. We'll be going over the two types of soil today. The soil with weeds and the soil and the good soil. Let's start off with the weedy dirt. 
Verse 17, wait, verse 18, sorry. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. Unfruitful. This is the third type of soil. Um, We all understand weeds, right? Probably many of us grew up, and if your mom had a garden, my mom had a garden, and I remember it would be the best day of the year, just perfect out. Warm, time to go to the pool. You wake up, you go to you go to you go to breakfast, you have all these plans for the day, and your mom would tell you, No, you don't. You are pulling weeds today. Mm-hmm. Weeds? I don't even know. I can't yeah. even tell the difference between weeds and good plants. So mm-hmm. my mom didn't my mom didn't buy that and we're having good plants I ripped out anyway. Um, and uh, we know about that, right? Because you need to pull the weeds, because if you don't pull, pull the weeds, they will compete for the nutrients in the soil and the water in the soil with the plants that you actually want. You won't get the crop that you desire if you just let weeds grow in it. There are so many examples in the life of Christ, but I think one that really stands out is in Mark chapter 10. This is the rich young ruler. As I give these examples, um, I'll be preaching on the rich young ruler at some point, and you can't say I'm like recycling sermons. This is just uh, Mark chapter 10, we have the rich young ruler. This, this guy comes to Jesus, and he asks him, good, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God alone is good. Which is great, because he's God alone. Anyway, um, and, and, and he tells him, just follow what the scripture says. And, and call all his commandments. He asks him which commandments. He tells him a couple of commandments. He says, I've kept them since I was young. You know what, you know what it says? Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. This, this was not an own compilation like you see on YouTube. You know, I'm talking about like you have somebody and they have such a nice little comeback. Maybe we read this like this when Jesus tells him, go sell everything you have and give, it, give the money to the poor and come follow me. Now it says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. All we know is what did happen. We don't know what could have happened. It's the same call for the rest of the disciples. Could this man have been the replacement for Judas later on? We don't know. Obviously not, because that's not what happened. That was a part of God's. That was not part of God's plan. But he gets the invitation. Follow me. But he loved his stuff too much, and he weeps. And he weeps. The cares of this life were too much for him. Now, believe me. You do not need a lot of money to love money. You do not need to have a lot of things in your life to love those things, to be possessive, to be possessed by your possessions. Many times for many people, this is like that parable of how you cook a process. This isn't a biblical parable, it's just a normal parable. Or whatever, another kind of parable. You know how you boil a frog is that if you have the boiling water, you throw the frog in, he's going to hop right out. But if you put the frog in the water, supposedly you can just turn it up and he just thinks it's a jacuzzi until he's frog soup. For, for many people, they come to God, they, they understand the gospel, they're attending church, they, they want to have a relationship with God, except the rich young ruler, right? I've kept all these commandments since I was young. They don't realize that they start loving the stuff around them stuff they really care about. It doesn't actually have to be material things. It could be other things, too. And you, and you start loving it more than Jesus. 
And then when it becomes, when it comes to a point where it's like this or Jesus, they say this. This. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because these people, they seem like they are believers. Like the Word of God is producing fruit. But it turns out, no, the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this world, are choking it out. Sometimes it's kind of a combination. Somebody has this and then something bad happens in their life, and they're like, they're like the soil amongst the rock. The word, the word, when it comes to the, the seed that's scattered amongst the, the, the rocky soil, um, Jesus says that they are offended by the word. It's the same word that is used in the Gospels when it comes to um, John the Baptist. When he sends his disciples out to Jesus, and, he, um, and they say, are you the one or should we wait for another? And Jesus says, look, look at this, and, and, and there's a quotation in there that he's getting at, but he leaves out freedom for the captives, because that's not what this is about, for freedom for John, for what's about to happen. And he says, blessed is one who believes and is not offended by me. It's the same word for offended. It's the, it's the person who, I thought Jesus was supposed to fulfill all of these things. It's the one who wants a tame Jesus. A Jesus like that's like a genie in the lamp. And when he's not like that, they, 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 they cast it aside. The weedy soil is the person that cares of this life that's choking out any affection they have towards the Lord. This was the great, this, this was the great warning that Jesus gives to the church in Ephesus in, in, in Revelation. Is that they've forgotten their first love. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans? Great. So do I. But I have this again, you've forgotten your first love. In Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol, there's this line spoken to Scrooge by his fiancée. If you know the story, you have the ghost of Christmas past, and he takes it back to his past. And there's a point in Scrooge's life that he was going to marry this young woman. And it's at the end of their relationship, they're deciding to go different ways. And there's this line here, spoken by his fiancée. It matters little, she said softly, to you very little. Another idol has displaced me. And if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to, I have no just cause to grieve. What idol has displaced you? He rejoined. She says, a golden one. That's the sad deal of idols that we allow into our life. They take away our love for Christ. Very much like the golden calf. You know what Aaron said when he made the golden calf at when it, in the Ten Commandments, Moses is coming to, is up on the hill, and they're like, here's all our rings, make it into something. He says, here is your God who brought you out of Egypt. When we love the, the blessings in our life, we the blesser. We look at that thing. Here's my God that brought me out of despondency and depression. Here's my God that gave me hope for today. How awful is that? Because this is not my God. This did not do any such thing. Even if I used it to talk to somebody who encouraged me, it is the Lord who has brought me out. Amen. We confuse it. You know, the devil, that's what the devil wants to do. He wants to distract us. That's what the seed amongst the, amongst the thorns is. It's a distraction. Here's an interesting fact, too. The uh, word for thorns here, it's a specific plant. And it is the same word, and it's the same plant that was used to make the crown of thorns. Mm. You probably are getting the symbolism of that. The very things that we put our heart towards are the things that Christ died for. The devil wants to distract us, to take away any affection we had towards Christ. There is a, uh, there's a phrase coined by the Roman uh, poet, Juvenile. Um, I'm not going to try to say this. 
but what it means is bread and circuses. It was his criticism of the Roman government, who was doing such a terrible job. There was famine, there was disease, there was constant war, but they had the Colosseum, they had the games, and they fed them bread at the games, bread and circuses. Make the population forget all the stuff that's happening, and not the real important things. Why are we even in Germania or anything like that? No! I can't wait to see the next blood sports, and then I can get my hand out from the government. Unfortunately, it's what tyrants have done for so long, and that's what the devil, the greatest tyrant, wants to do in our life, just distract us. Our only passion, sports, entertainment. I mean, there are people who will straight up reject God if, if he starts damaging their entertainment. Reject God if he starts if he starts getting involved in my business. So that's the that is the seed that falls amongst the soil, the weedy soil. Finally, we have the good soil. But those that were sown on the good soil are, are ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. These are Christ's disciples. Almost as hard as that to believe when you read the whole the Gospels and you find out all the problems that they have, you know, Peter denying Christ three times, he's still good soil. And here's the thing, you're not, you're not holding up God, he's not disappointed in you, he holds you up. And even when we have troubles, even when the stuff gets in our life, we can trust the Holy Spirit to cultivate that out, to till up that soil once again. But these are the disciples who come to Jesus. There's this time where all these other supposed disciples are telling Jesus, let me go and bury my father. Let me go and, uh, and, and, and try out these new oxen. And they all leave Jesus. And Jesus turns to his disciples. He turns to Peter. Are you not going to leave me too? And you know what Peter says? Where would we go? You have the words of life. Amen. As messed up as Peter was during that time, there was something in his soul that says, there's only one place I can find life. There's only one place I can find what my heart truly desires. They produce fruit. Good soil is good because the seed grows in it unhindered and the plant matures and produces fruit. What fruit should you be producing? First fruit is salvation. Do you have an inward, inward witness of the Holy Spirit? Do you love or do you love other things other than Christ? Is he your one sole desire? Second, are you seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life? Now, there's, there's a kind of a time where we are growing in this, and the growth is so slight, or it's maybe an area that we have such a hard time in that we're the only ones who see it. But you should see growth in your life in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. If not, or not much, is this an area that you maybe need to ask the Holy Spirit to cultivate, to remove rocks, to remove weeds, to till up the soil? This is one of the things, when I think of my life in Christ, probably one of the biggest things that really affected me. I, I came to Christ when I was a teenager, and I see several teenagers here. Harder kind of upbringing, single-parent home of five kids, um, obviously very, very poor. And I uh, remember having all this anger, hatred in my life. And when God saved me, this is the one thing I was like, I really love the people in my life. I really love my enemies. I really love people who don't even like me. And I see this more and more in my life because I don't really think that's kind of like the, the fallen personality that I had was somebody who loves other people. 
But I find more and more every year I grow in love for all kinds of people. Even for people I think are doing awfully damaging things. I love them, and that's how I can honestly pray for for our stewards in Washington, even the ones I think are, are literally destroying America. I can pray for them because God has given me a love for them. There are threats to the good soil, and those threats do come back. We know this when it comes to earthly cultivation of land. You have to continually pull weeds. Man, I wish that wasn't the case. Or every summer having to pull weeds. You have to constantly look for those areas where you're not bearing fruit. Maybe that's an area that's rocky soil. Maybe there's areas where just you know what's good, but you just don't want to do it, so you have to yield yourself to the Holy Spirit. You have to yield yourself to the plow of the Holy Spirit to till up that land. At the end of Jesus' parable of the, of the explanation and of the parable itself, he gives a, something shocking. And I didn't realize this was so shocking because I don't know much about farming. He says it produces a crop 30, 60, and 100 fold. Now, I was like, well, great. I didn't realize, especially at Jesus' time, that's yield that you, you couldn't ask for. You couldn't even expect. You couldn't hope for. That is, that is how Christ builds his church. There is a harvest that is so much greater than we could ask or think. This is the word of the kingdom. It can produce much more than we can ask or think. After all, it does take what is dead and make it alive. Worship team, would you come up this time? I mentioned a few weeks ago the vision God has given for our church for evangelism and discipleship and how interconnected those are. I am believing for a harvest of souls. I am believing that the harvest is white. As we see the harvest just right out there is ready. It's getting more and more ready. Some of you I won't see for a while because we'll be doing 20-hour days getting the harvest in. I am believing for a much greater harvest in Kisuth, Palo Alto, Iowa, that God would add to our number of those who are being saved. We are going over Acts in our Bible study on Wednesday nights, which is a great, great book. I mean, Jessica has talked about this. It's a, it's a God thing to, to orchestrate this together. It's because we get to see the Word of God start producing fruit. That's so many thousands and thousands being added to their number. I don't know what God will do in our church. All I know is that the fields are white. So I pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers in here. You are the workers in Christ's vineyard. You are the workers in his field. You go to school tomorrow. You are part of that prayer. And we are expecting to see a great harvest of souls. You know, the other part of this, as we sing our last song, we always have to ask God, the Holy Spirit, seek me. Seek what is ever unclean in me. Another way of looking at this for you in the parable today, show me where the rocks are. Show me where the weeds are. Show me where the hard parts of the field are. Then we have to yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. To come to Him in humbleness and say, God, I don't have it all together. I need you. As we sing this last song, this is the time of reflection. Of asking God, where has my heart, my heart grown hard? Where have there been rocks? Where have there been weeds that have need to be ripped out? And then to yield ourselves to the to the gardener who prunes every branch in Christ that does not bear fruit. Would you please stand with us as we sing our last song?